Hi, this is Claudia Gray, and you're listening to Don't Burn the Sacred Text. A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. This is the story of Star Wars. You can read along with me in your book. O is for Obi-Wan Kenobi. All rebel fighters met at fleet headquarters to plan their attack. Princess Leia addressed them. Obi-Wan never told you what happened to your father. He told me enough. He told me you killed him. No, I am your father. Hello, I am C-3PO, and you are about to listen to the story of Star Wars. Another chapter is here. Welcome to Don't Burn the Sacred Text. My name is Brandon, and I am here with my co-host. She is as epic as Porter Engel surfing on a starfighter with a backwards hat. It's Lindsay. (laughs) <laughs> it's the backwards hat that does it <laughs> right i was like that's it yeah i had i had just a porter angle on the starfighter and i was like that's cool but imagine if he had because he's got like the long hair and the beard and everything like he was a skater boy just a united boy i wonder what like the star wars equivalent though of wearing a backwards hat would really be you know, mm. like they they all have their robes and everything. Like, what would the Star Wars equivalent of a backwards hat be? I think it's like you know when people like wear the hoodies like right at the ear, like they don't pull the hood all the way up. It's like doing that. It's like I'm not Ooh, trying to hide, okay. but I'm okay. also a mystery. You know? I like it. I like it. Yeah. yeah, I'll take it. Now here's the real question: What's the Star Wars version of the early 2000s wearing the visor upside down? I think maybe just wearing the robe inside out. Who knows? Yeah. Oh, man. Now I'm thinking about, like, Star Wars crisscross. How hard? That that would be so hard to fight. Like, you got the hood all hitting you in the face and everything like that. Anyways, guys, uh, this is the the intellectual episode of (laughs) Don't Burn Sacred Text, where we are going to be talking about The Rising Storm, which is, of course, the latest novel in the High Republic series. But before we get there, we need to talk about different books, as in the books that are sitting in my closet, waiting with bated breath to get into classrooms. So if you guys know a teacher, um, particularly I have elementary and lower middle grade books um, that we should send books to, please go over to ClashingSavers.net and nominate a teacher. Uh, So schools are pretty much either back in action or will be soon with a lot of uh, schools going back to in-person for uh, the first time in almost two years. So we want to help make things a little bit better and brighter for all of them. So again, go over to ClashingSavers.net, nominate a teacher, and I will get books out to them, hopefully within the first couple weeks of school, um, as soon as I get those. Because when I am say I have hundreds of books in my closet, I have hundreds of books in my closet so we will be sending big boxes so whether whether the teacher is a star wars fan or not if you are the teacher right if you are the teacher nominate yourself yourself. uh you don't have to be a star wars fan we will send it anywhere within the united states uh so please just get over there nominate some amazing teachers and let's support these kids as they are going back to school i know the campus that i'm going to be at was 70 percent virtual last year so this is literally the first time in two years that the kids are going to be on a school campus. So anything to tell them that we get what they're going through and to show the teachers that they are not alone because it can feel very lonely uh, in times like these. So with that said, Lindsay, have you been reading anything good lately other than The Rising <laughs> <No>. Storm? <laughs> I haven't been reading anything bad. I haven't. <laughs> I just, 
I really need to start reading things that aren't Star Wars. (laughs) (laughs) I know this about myself. I just still, I I can't do it. So I was, uh, I finished uh, Rising Storm and I was waiting on Out of the Shadows to get here because I had all kinds of trouble getting a copy of Out of the Shadows. It finally got here, but I had like a weird like three or four days where I'm like, I'm not going to be able to finish a book in that time. But I also need something to read. So I pulled out Tales of the Bounty Hunter, and I was reading the IG-88 stuff. It's a little bit ridiculous. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to go get some, uh, you know, like a, a middle-grade book that I can finish pretty quickly. And uh, it wasn't very good. So I went back to reading IG-88, and then Out of the Shadows came. So I still haven't finished the IG-88 story uh, that I have been attempting to read for probably going on six months now. It's not looking great um, for me because I actually just got a notification that Delilah Dawson's new book is in the uh, the smart lockers over here at my apartment complex. So I will be grabbing that after. Ooh, yeah, That's a big one. Okay. Yeah, so that's that's how I branch out of Star Wars is is reading other Star Wars authors. You know, like Star Wars is like the tryout for me, you know? Maybe that's what I need to like start doing to be okay with branching off from Star Wars. But it's just like there's there's so much content coming out now too where it's like look, if this is what I have time to do, if I have time to sit down and read, it's going to be with this stuff. Yeah, it, it really kind of has to be. Like you said, there's so much that's coming out now. Like, I got a whole bunch of uh, Expanded Universe Legends books, and they're filling up my shelf. Like, I have probably 30 to 35 that I haven't read that are sitting on my shelf. And I'm just, like, looking at all the books that are coming out on my Amazon pre-order, and I'm like, I don't know when I'm ever going to get to these, which... I mean, as somebody who obviously loves reading and reading is the literal center of his life uh, is not a bad problem to have because I really I think that they have found a formula, not that they're being formulaic, but they found a formula of how to do Star Wars books now where there's not a lot that are misses. Um, And we'll get into that a little bit more as we're talking about about the rising storm. But let's go ahead and get into it. And uh we're going to start with our rating. So what we like to do, if you're, this is your first time listening, one, this is going to be full spoilers. So if you haven't read Rising Storm, turn back now. Two, this is not going to be a plot synopsis. We are going to jump all over the place. So uh, if you haven't read the book and you're trying to get a, a simple plot synopsis, uh, there are a lot of sites on YouTube and podcasts that do that. And then you can come back over here and get some of our, our analysis on that. So with that in mind... I'm going to give my rating first this time, and then we'll see if you can change my mind, because I think mine is going to be a little bit different than most people's. Okay. Uh, Mine is a 3.75 out of 5. Okay. Now, why do you think that's different than most people's? Uh, Most people I have heard and listened to and seen online are considering this possibly the best Star Wars novel. Okay. I think, and and I'm going to just keep it at this simple statement, I think it is a an insanely good book that is going to be top tier, but it is not on the levels of Light of the Jedi, Lost Stars, uh, Dark Disciple, like the, those Master and Apprentice, those A-tier books. It's not 
quite there for me. And I'll get in, into that a little bit more as we talk about the the uh, book. But what's your what's your rating? Okay, like? you know what? That's actually re- really interesting because before we ever record these episodes, I actually make an effort not to. um, read or listen or watch other reviews just because I don't want to necessarily plagiarize, I guess. (laughs) I was going to say take from them, but I guess it's more plagiarizing. Um, So I I actually kind of stay in the dark afterwards um, because I don't want them to sway my initial opinion. So it's really interesting to know that that is the the general consensus. So you could say you go into the dark and then come out uh, of the shadows. Get out. Get out. Um, I do like the opposite of what you do going into any like big TV show or movie where you don't watch any previews or, or read any like, you know, yeah from the set type of stuff. I do the exact opposite where I'm like, yeah, no, I'll watch all the previews, but I'm not going to read a single review. My initial rating or I guess stars of this book would probably be a four out of five. And I've actually been very apprehensive to hop on and record this and have this discussion with you uh, because I feel like the four out of five really comes from the emotional standpoint, whereas you usually we are really good about taking a step back and saying, you know, what, I'm going to put my personal opinions aside, looked at this really objectively, look at this overall as as, you know, you being the English teacher and me being more of the critic able to put that emotion aside and say, here's how it is as a writer. And then I realized, I think we do that when we want to look at things positively, but now I don't have to do that because emotionally it was so good. And I love the characters and I have so many positive things to say where my fear is once we get into the nitty gritty and the details of it, that usually make me like a book more. I'm like, Oh, I hope this doesn't make me like it less. Well, I think, I mean, I think this is definitely a character, uh, centric book where Light of the Jedi was more setting up the the galaxy and I feel like more of the philosophy. This was more about developing the characters. So I, I think you're definitely on to something there as far as the emotional impact because that's at the end of the day, that's the goal with characters. Like it's great if you can understand their motivation. It's great if they're funny or intriguing. But if you if you're not emotionally if you don't emotionally care about them, then it doesn't matter what any of right. that is anyways. Right. Everything else is kind of making up for the fact that you don't care about the characters. Whereas this one, I really did feel like I cared about most of the characters. Um, so let me ask you, you this know, then with the characters. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Because this, this, I have two major issues with this book that I kind of want to get out of the way at the start so that we can focus on okay. the things that are really good. Because... The first one's kind of minor, and it is it's we've got too many characters. Yo, I'm so happy you said that because I was just about to say if we want to just hop in and talk about it, my biggest issue with it was going to be that there were so many side characters. Exactly. Like I don't know who the protagonist of this book is. No, and I'm fine. I'm fine with having like an ensemble, you know, and and going into it that way. I'm okay with that, but. I just felt like every single how how do I start to define this? If it's an ensemble book or an ensemble movie, figure you don't just say, you know, the main character. You say the main characters. You know, and and it's okay to have five, six, seven main characters. But this is I think the first time where every single main character 
had kind of like a, a branch off where there were three or four other side characters related to them. So now we need to start to keep track of all of those. Whereas typically I think in an ensemble story, the side characters all interact with each other and they know each other through different ways. This really was galaxy spanning in, it wasn't necessarily confusing in the way, you know, I, I hate bringing this up because we are not big Thrawn people. Um, but the issue with Thrawn was there's so many side characters and you can't necessarily keep track of them because their names are confusing and things are similar. This, I feel like everything was different and so individual, individualistic, but it was still just too many. It was too many. And when you think about ensemble, you at least know who the main protagonist is either overall like in a harry potter situation where that's an ensemble you know especially in the movies uh the books more follow harry directly but you have Mm -hmm. you know hermione and ron and stuff are very much main characters as much as they are side characters or even more than they are side characters rather or uh like an avengers situation you know at each moment who the protagonist is Mm -hmm. right and Mm -hmm. And a, a lot of those stories, and in, in, in my opinion, in the best types of ensemble ones, the antagonist and the protagonist, you know, come from the same group. So you think like Civil War. I think that's part of the reason that that movie, you know, continues to hit so hard is not just because it has all these amazing characters. It oh, you you calm down, uh, <laughs> it, but it it turn it has you know Tony as the antagonist and and. Uh, cap as the the protagonist whereas this it didn't have any singular focus on any one character um or even two characters it's like stellan was kind of the main character but then also elzar was the main character but then there are these b characters on the side but then the side characters around them became c characters and it's not that it was too hard to keep track of who they were, like in right, the Thrawn books. Right. It was, we didn't have enough time to emotionally connect with those characters. So this is something I mentioned. We had a brief little conversation, Zach and Drew and I, uh, about this book on the last episode of Clashing Sabres. And I mentioned the fact that Loden, I forgot about him most of the book. Because we only had like three chapters with him and before we get to the end. And so whenever Bell was not directly thinking about Loden, I completely forgot about him. Because you don't see him getting tortured a lot. You don't see Martian thinking about him a lot. Also, I like calling him Martian and I will continue to call him Martian because I think it sounds fancier. And I like fancy villains. So... <laughs> Um, we're so casual here yeah exactly so (laughs) um but yeah like i I felt like you know indira is somebody who i want to know more about that we didn't get to spend enough time with uh you know i think not being able to spend as much time with ty york who i find completely fascinating is a detriment to the book and and i think part of that i i don't think that's necessarily just kevin scott's fault and i don't even know if i want to call it a a, a fault because it's not like he did something wrong or he didn't do what he was trying to do well i just don't i think in bringing everything together in this book because you have things from crash point tower you have things from the comics you have things from out of the shadows all playing a role in here i think this book had to do too much for one book 
I mean, I'd almost argue that he it's it's a testament to him and his writing that he made you want more as opposed to, I think, what we've seen in other ensembles and other, you know, very character, not driven, but character heavy novels where you just don't care because there's too much going on. So you're not invested in any particular thing, whereas at least with this. You know, if if you're saying you forgot about Loden for most of it, at least it sounds like when you remembered, you were excited. You know, oh, you, absolutely. It's it's something you're happy to go back to. And look, we we have to talk about it because it's never really been done before, and we were all wondering how it would play out and what it would look like. But the fact that this is, it's not necessarily a sequel. It really is the perfect example of how everyone contributing to the High Republic is working together to say, okay, here are these characters. You don't need to adapt your writing style and you don't need to adapt the story you're telling. But here are these really, really strong characters where it feels like we've met them in films. It feels like we've watched them throughout, you know, nine movies or two TV shows already. And we can put them on, on the page and we know exactly who they are. We know exactly what they might be going through or better yet, in terms of someone like Elzar Mann, like we understand the growth or the struggles that they're facing and why it's difficult. So to be able to say, you know, this is really the, the kind of third time that we've seen this in the High Republic where we're going from author to author to author and we have the same characters, but everything still feels so individual and still so well done, I think is a real testament for where they're going with this. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it talks about the time that they put in on the front end of developing these mm-hmm. characters and the storylines and, and things like that. And uh, they they are really passionate about, you know, this story. You can tell not just in you know, the interviews and stuff that that they've had, you know, as few and far between as they've been, but, you know, in their writing and in the fact that they're not, they're not promoing High Republic a lot, I guess. Like, they're, they're promoing it more than they would, you know, promo a normal book because they have put so much time into it. But this is not mm-hmm. getting a, a bad batch push. This is not getting a Clone Wars Season 7 push. No, And no. even... You know, like I've reached out for interviews and there a lot of times they're like, we're not doing interviews right now because we're keeping everything under wraps. You know, like think about that. The the movies, you let the actors go have interviews knowing that, you know, because it has happened before that they might slip up. But here they this story is so sacred to them that they are not even doing interviews that might, you know, help sell more books or, you know, get higher on the New York Times bestseller list. They're not worried about that. They're worried about telling a good Star Wars story. The integrity of the story. Exactly. And when you protect the integrity of the story, then you get one, the story you want to be told, but you get something that's top tier like We'll take Rebels, for example, because to me, that's the, the perfect example. Yeah. Filoni knew exactly what he wanted to do with that story. He knew exactly where it was going. He may not have had every point, but he knew exactly where it was going. And even though he could have probably carried it out for three, four, maybe even five more seasons because people were so passionate about it, he ended it when it needed to end and when he wanted mm-hmm. to end it and when his story was told. And 
the the scarcity effect comes into play. Part of the reason that I like Rebels or and still love Rebels so much is because I want more of it. Part of the reason I love you know Solo and continue to have that be one that I just go to more and more is because I want more of it. But it doesn't exist. So you start to look at all the little details. You start to look at all the little details in Rogue One and try to find everything you can about these characters because you care so much about them. And <laughs> it's I, I get the same kind of feeling with this. You're not getting a lot of... Like, the biggest conversation that the authors have had around this book is how to pronounce the villain's name. Like, think about that. It's not about all the <laughs> Jedi philosophy that they've brought in. It's not about yeah. the plot points or the great disaster yeah. or how they came up with the idea for the Republic Fair or how they're trying to link it to, uh, you know, episode one and episode two. They're really, to me, they're doing what George did in making their story that is centered on themes, that develops good characters, and doing what, what he trained Filoni to do. I think Filoni does this better than George did in his later years, but Filoni doesn't tell the audience what they're supposed to think. He, he, you know, ask him a question. I, 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 I don't know. What do you, what, what do you think? That's my Filoni. Yeah. Um, it's actually pretty good, right? So yeah. I mean, it's not great. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> I mean, it, I don't have my cowboy hat on, so it makes there it a little go. bit harder. Yeah. But I want to go back to to Elzar because um, mm-hmm. you, you mentioned it's, him. Yeah, and and he starts this book, and I love that he starts this book by literally baptizing himself in the waters of Ashla, like. He literally continually baptizes himself in Ashla, which we know is, you know, the light side of the force from one of George's original drafts. Like, that's That's very layered. Can we we just as me and you kind of geek out about some of these things? Because so many, like, little times. Everybody else, turn this off. We're just going to geek out. (laughs) But that's just that, like, you could pick this up being, like, kind of, you know, obviously not totally new to Star Wars, but kind of being an introductory fan, you know, and, and starting to get to know a lot of this background information and, and maybe not having all of the information that you and I do, but like, still it's cool, but to be treated to little snippets like that, like that's awesome. You know? So, so the fact that we're getting into the lore, it is paying respect, paying homage to all of this original stuff and all of these drafts while still being totally new is amazing but like look this is part of the reason why i love the high republic books is it really caters to you and i where it feeds into that jedi not mythology but kind of the creed and i feel like that's why i really kind of connect to elzar man in the way like drew connects to chris which is I get it. Like, I get that this is hard. I get that you want to be devout. I get that there are so many things you respect about the order and you're indoctrinated to a point, but there are these struggles. And I really, really like that we have this character to show us this in a, in my opinion, a much more appeasing way than, you know, the, the Anakin Skywalkers of the prequel where it's like, eh, I know he's going to turn bad. I don't really want to get connected to this or I see him for all of his faults. Like I really relate to this character and I love being able to go through this with him. There's so much in there that you just covered that. Like, I'm like, yes, yes. And this, and this, and this. So like, (laughs) first of all, you know, in bringing in, you know, the little Easter eggs and things like that, like Ashla, 
when you also think about it in in the bigger galaxy, you know, and in the bigger spectrum of the stories that have been told, Ahsoka uses the name Ashla when she's hiding out. So there's that connection there. Uh, the uh, what's Zeb's species? I just completely blanked on. But when the when the uh, prophecy from Zeb species, they talk about the Ashla and the Bogan. Yeah. So it's like, okay, this planet that clearly was important to the Jedi, like that somehow continued on and somehow permeated these other cultures to where 200 years later, 230 years later, like Ahsoka is choosing that name and this other species that, you know, thought, you know, were gone or choosing that name. Stuff like that's really cool to me. And we, I want to circle back to like the Jedi philosophies because there's three that really stood out to me. But as far as Elzar is concerned, um, you're talking about, you know, Anakin and, and the turning to the dark side. I feel like this book is setting us up for a fall. And I don't think he's going to become a Sith. I think this is going to be something my closest like uh, analogy that I could give is what happens uh, with Quinlan Voss in Dark Disciple, except actually getting to see it. We don't really get to see Quinlan fall in in there. We see him tempted by the dark and using the dark in the same way that, that Elzar, or in a similar way to Elzar here. But to me, the one scene that kind of made me start to lean towards that direction even before he started you know basically throwing planets around for those of you who you know wanted to see uh great jedi powers is him standing in the zoo and contemplating the animals in the zoo to me that's him analyzing his own inner animal and his own inner beast that he hasn't either hasn't figured out how to tame or knows is in a cage that it could break out of much easier than the people you know just casually walking by would like to believe and that says a lot about the Jedi to me, you know, and, and I do think it says a lot about him that he sees that and tries to do something about it. Uh, and, and I admit that part of the reason I think he's going to fall is because that's kind of how Star Wars works. So I'm not necessarily like that has to happen, but I do think that they are, are setting this up for that that failure of some sort. Yeah, that's absolutely beautifully put. Um, I do think that the that scene also is just really impactful. Um, it's it's weird to say, but I kind of have a an odd wish list item for that fall. And please don't judge me for this because I know it's like messed up, especially because I just went through kind of how much I love him and how much I relate to him. But what I would like to say is I think what has always been lacking in Star Wars, where it is tragedy for the sake of tragedy. You know, where it is Orpheus turning around for no other reason than for a tragedy. And I think that anytime we see a character fall from grace or fall from the Jedi Order, it is either for good, like Ahsoka, or... It is a real true fall where it is affecting everyone else in the entire galaxy. But I'd be interested just to see a character fall and not necessarily take, um, oh, I'm blanking on that vow in the Vader comic. Um, uh, the Bearish vow. Thank you. Thank you. 
um, you know, they don't necessarily take that vow or anything. It's just a true fall from grace, you know, and it, and it's okay to see that because it does happen. And I think that's what's missing in Star Wars is when people fall from grace, fall from the order, it is to one extreme or the other. So let me ask you this then, because we're kind of thinking in the same direction with him. And in this book, we, we see him, you know, take the the model of the planet the little floating sample of the planet he does what has to be done and and i don't think we should read that in the same way that anakin does what ha- what he thinks has to be done that's that's a very big difference elzar does what has to be done anakin does what he thinks has to be done and that's a big distinction to make but do you think that this is elzar's trial and if it is do you think he passed by going to Stellan, or do you think he failed by giving into the dark at all? I think he pa- okay. It's that's an amazing question um, because it depends how you're judging it. I think he passed in terms of right or wrong, doing you know kind of that gray area type thing. I think the issue is when we look, you know, two hundred plus years in the future, they would say he failed. And I think mm. we're going to explore that difference a little bit more and see how how that kind of came to be and how that extreme came to be. Because from what I can tell is at this point, most of the existing Jedi in this High Republic era would say, yeah, no, you, you passed. You know, you, you bordered on that temptation. That's okay. That's natural. And and that to me is a really big piece of the story too. Is the Jedi here are able to admit what is natural and what's not, and what's natural is okay. Um, but that's why I think that you and I know he passed, and the Jedi of this era know he passed. But the Jedi of the Star Wars that we are used to would not say he passed. See, I would actually say the exact opposite. Really, I would because when. So Obi-Wan get, gains knighthood for killing Darth Maul, for being the first to to kill a Sith in generations. And of course, yes, Maul lived and everything like that. But when you look at that part of the fight, the part where he won, he was very much in the aggression, dark side aspect of things, right? And while, yes, situationally he did have to kill Maul, it didn't seem like there was the remorse that, you know, we see the characters here having about even killing the Nile. And Obi-Wan passed. He did this great thing. He overcame their their enemy, so they passed. They passed him, you know? And it's like it's like a kid who did did okay all year and then fails the last test, and you're like, ah, whatever, you you got close enough so we're gonna let you go whereas with Stellan or excuse me with Elzar the way that he went about doing it was wrong and because of that I don't think that they would say he passed because even though he did the right thing and even though he reacted later in the right way to it I think just the fact that he was still tempted by that darkness would cause them to go hey maybe we don't yet like yes this is natural like yes we understand your reaction but let's explore this a little bit more before we just go yeah because you admitted you did something wrong it's okay does that make sense 
It makes sense. And I, I think maybe you and I are both kind of on the right track where in the High Republic, there does seem to be a lot more individuality in the Jedi where some of the Jedi would say, hey, I interpret the code this way. So so you did all right. You know, you, you did what you were supposed to do. Other Jedi, you know, are starting to look at it the way you are. And that I think is kind of the, the beauty of the High Republic is it gives us so much else to really dive into. Whereas the only other thing I could really think of is master and apprentice, you know, mm. where, where we get to see some different colors and some different ways of thinking of things. Whereas in the high Republic, the different way of thinking of things is the norm and it is still respected. Yeah. I mean, it's, Part of what High Republic is doing, and this is not its main thing, it's not a prequel to the prequels, but it is giving us points that connect to that story, right? I think that's just what Star Wars does, yeah. you know? I right. love the way you phrase that, though, too, that this is not the prequel to the prequels, because I think just I'm I'm guilty of it doing it right now, even, is you kind of always want that thing to, like, compare it to. So it is hard to wrap your head around the fact like this is totally individual. Like it has the Star Wars label that has lightsabers and has Jedi, but this is totally individual and unique and of its own accord. But I think what's beautiful about that also is you have these Star Wars fans who everybody in in this group of authors has been Star Wars fans for years. This isn't like this isn't like a Taylor Gray situation, right? Where Taylor Gray, who voiced Ezra, he didn't really know anything about Star Wars before getting into Star Wars. Then he got into Star Wars. No, the and and that's fine. Like that's that's their entry point. Totally cool. But these character, these authors have decades of thinking about Star Wars and decades of hearing the conversations that Star Wars fans have been having, right? And so then they're able to take that and in in from their certain point of view, provide an answer to that question, right? Especially when we're talking about the things about the Jedi and the prequels and kind of how strict they are about the code. And of course, you know, there's the the aspect of love, which is front and center in, in the prequels. Like Obi-Wan not expressing his love for Anakin, Shmi's uh, selfless love for Anakin, Anakin's obsessive love over Padme, like all these different versions of love take place in that story. And here you have Indira talking to Bell, who is, he's my favorite character other than, uh, other than Ember. Cause Ember love, is. Love, love Bell. Oh, I just want, I want like the adventures of Bell and Ember, like just a little TV show. But Indira is talking to him about how Jedi are allowed to love but can't be slaves to their emotions. And she literally uses the word slaves, which is, you know, uh, on the spot there. Um, and that experiencing emotions is part of life. I think this is something that fans have been talking about forever, you know. And and to an extent, even though his where he's coming from and his motivation behind it is not true, Anakin's, you know, Jedi are encouraged to love is true. Right. The, the the sentiment is true. The approach through which he's taking it, trying to be like, so I can love. So Padme, you want to, you know, go back in the uh, the refugee closet over here. Not cool. But the idea behind it is Did you just say the refugee closet. 
I don't know what janitor's closet. You did. The refugees, did. whatever. The refugee closet. Okay, I'm sorry. Go on. <laughs> no, that was my point. That was my point. And out of it, you took refugee closet. <laughs> I mean, it was a big highlight. It was. But no, that's, that is, be- other than that one part, that was beautifully funny. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was beautiful, too. So, yeah, like, I, I think... The we're getting these ideas and I and I can't remember which books in the first wave. I know for sure Test of Courage touched on it. Um when Emery started to utilize the dark side and Vernestra was talking to him about how, you know, we're allowed to have emotions, we're just not allowed to give in to them, right? And that's always kind of been, you know, I, I, I've tried to take on a lot of Jedi philosophies in my own like way of life. And a lot of times, you know, something bad will happen and people will be shocked that I'm not like grief stricken over it. And it's not that I, it's like, it's not that I am not, it's not that I don't feel these feelings, but I'm not giving into them because then they are going to just control me and, and lead me down a dark path. It's yes, those emotions are present. It's like what I tell my students. It's not, your feelings that are wrong. Your feelings are never wrong. What you do with those feelings is wrong. Hate is not wrong. What you do with the hate is wrong. I think it is so crucial then that Kevin Scott is the first one to really dive into that in the adult novels because I think you and I are used to seeing it in the young adult novels and then the junior novels, because that is a theme that they, they really toy around with so well there. Um, they do it often. They do it beautifully. Whereas in, for lack of better terms, the adult novels like this, it gets a little misconstrued because authors can just assume like adults know this or they're not necessarily interested in this, but he does it so well. And I am always, 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 whenever I read something of his, um, obviously before this, it was always the, um, the comic books. And I believe, didn't he do, did he do a short story for like myths and fables? Uh, possibly. Or maybe for, maybe for a, a certain, certain point, point of, view. of view. Yeah. Yeah. He's, but he's I, kind I'm of always... one of those ones. He's like the actor where you're like, he's in everything. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's the Renaissance man of star Wars. Um, but I'm always taking back to our interview with him way back when, when he was talking about, it's okay to show evil, even to kids, mm-hmm. as long as you show the consequences. Mm-hmm. And that's something that for his kind of debut on this main stage, I think he did so well is setting us up to see and understand the consequences. So it's not just, Hey, here's this one story, here's this one situation in this one character, it's here's the ripple effects of these and here's how we don't necessarily see it right now, but I think in the future we really will start to see big consequences for kind of toying with with the difference between emotion and action. Um, So I think he was just kind of the, the perfect fit to start to show us the code in a different way where, yeah, there's going to be different interpretations of it. There's going to be different um, struggles with it, but there's also going to be different consequences with it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and one thing I really love about how he presents the Jedi here is that they are actually very non-judgmental, which is not true in the prequels at all. And I think 
telling a story like this that's bringing so many point of view, points of view together and and really in telling any story you know you need when you're when you're portraying morals you need to portray them in not a holier than thou way but in the way of here are people who are struggling with the same things that you are mm-hmm. and here's how they overcame it you know like and that's what i think we're getting here is here are these jedi heroes who are again air quotes just for lack of a better term better than us you know they are farther along the path than us and they're showing us how they got there they're showing us the you know what uh, i i hate to cut you off but no, before go for we we diverge from the topic i'm so happy you brought that up because i think one thing he i was really excited to see him kind of bring up and sprinkle in is the fact that not every citizen or in this case senator totally mm. jazzed about the jedi right <laughs> like, yeah like i think we're used to you know and, and this is something that they really stressed in light of um light of the jedi was people love them especially in the high republic you know and, the, and they kept advertising this as the golden age of the jedi you know and and to still see like hey there are people who aren't necessarily jazzed about having this kind of police force or having this one defense system being the one and only and there are starting to be some some varying points of views i thought was done really really well where it didn't take away from the story it wasn't the main plot point yeah but added to the story it added to the story and i think it really again goes back to the fact that like these authors are really working together where we're going to see stuff picked up in different ways later on well and to me it just from what you said, I think about Luke in The Last Jedi, where that is our hero, right? And we learn that our hero is not perfect. And we have to figure out how to contextualize him still as our hero, but as a hero who has the struggles that we have, right? And that's something when you're presenting a character, especially in this era, where like you said, the Jedi are, you know, idealized they're myth uh myth mythalized that's not the right word but you know what i mean uh, uh oh god i know the exact i know okay oh god what is that word i hate that there, people are yelling at their radios right now um but you're also showing them as being human and as being flawed and i think that that's really i think that makes for the best stories because then you can go hey you know what i lost my grandmother and so I know what Bella's feeling and still trying to be the person that she would want me to be in the same way he wants to be the person Loden would want him to be, but not being able to get over that hump. Like, I, that's literally out of my life. It is literally, like, that's why I connect with Bell. He, in, in philosophy, in morality, in everything, he is the kind of person that I would want to be, but he also almost gets defeated and stuck in place by his grief, right? So I both look up to him and relate to him. That is the key to a character. And that, when you're looking at, you know, Star Wars is a kid's story, and we were talking earlier about bringing these ideas in in, in junior novels and YA novels, that's because kids need to realize that at that level of development, right? That heroes are not gods, that your parents are human beings just trying to do their best, And, you know, by the time we get to, you know, our 30s or whatever, we start to realize that. But we need to be reminded that those people are still heroes, 
right? We start to look at, let's I like say, that thought. Yeah. you know, we look at our parents and we go, mm, you're just really, really human. But then you also still can look up to them, right? Like it's a, it's a, it's two ends of the spectrum that can exist at the same time. And I think that that is going back to what you were saying about Kevin Scott earlier about it's okay to show evil as long as you show the consequences at the same time, it's, you should be able to show moral, uh, we'll say superiority, even though that's not the right word for it, but somebody who's morally better or higher or farther along the path than you are, they're, but also showing that they are flawed. They're not sanctimonious about it. Thank you. Yes, that's it. Yeah, that's the key. That, that's the they're not right sanctimonious. And look, like that's why, you know, anytime we do get into like those Marvel tangents, I always say like, I prefer Iron Man to Captain America because I like that we see Iron Man really struggle with things. And I like that we see his flaws and it's not just the Captain America on his high horse and on his pedestal and kind of being that boy scout who never seems to struggle with what's right or wrong. I like seeing that struggle and I like seeing that they're even this is, this is, I think a big part of it is even after the fact I like when you when the hero doesn't know if they did the right thing. Mm. I really I really really like that. Yeah, I mean going back to you know your Marvel analogy you get that in Civil War where neither Tony nor Cap knows if they did the right thing, right? And it's where to draw the line of morality is a question that Star Wars has had forever, you know? Like, even going back to earlier drafts of Return of the Jedi, you know, you had Luke turning to the dark side, like, versus what we get now. Like, the line is always moving because it's always moving in our lives. And so I like seeing different people at different levels because one thing, like, in Light of the Jedi, like, Stellan and Elzar felt very much the same to me. In this one, they didn't, right? And then you also get these other characters like Ty York, I'm absolutely fascinated by. Like, I want to know more of her story. I want to know, again, going back to the philosophies and stuff, she doesn't name her ship because she doesn't want to make attachments to things that can't make attachments to her. Like, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. there's a story there. That's not just a coincidence, yeah. you know. But you know what, though? I said the same thing about DJ from Last Jedi, and we really... I think he's like the most underutilized character just because of the archetype that he is. Like, I like those kind of characters who, who have their code and whether it's, you know, don't form allegiances or, or kind of protect yourself. Like it's okay to have that ambiguity when we're talking about morality. And that's something I think was done so well in this book that can really only be done effectively in an ensemble book like this. Yeah. And, and I would be careful to equate, Ty York to DJ. I see what you're saying, but I think the oh, I'm just yeah, I'm not equate just kind of as the example of like that one-off archetype, right? And and I think I think there's definitely more to her here, and and the fact that we have that, which leads me to thinking that there's some kind of history with her and maybe some kind of relationship or love interest or attachment. These ideas of attach or uh, you know. Uh, romantic relationships between Jedi, whether they're physical or actually, you know, romantic, uh, keeps coming up in all these different books. So I'm wondering if there's something there, and I'm wondering if maybe there's a uh, Elzar Yorick ship 
that's about to happen that could play a role in his potential fall to the I dark mean, or leaving of the, the let's, Jedi. Let's be real. Eljar seems to have some kind of ship with every single I mean, yeah. I don't know. It's funny. I'm like, y- y'all correct me on this. M- Lindsay, I'll, I'll get your point of view on this. You got right. Stellan and you got Elzar in the same room. Who are you choosing? I mean, I'd go with Stellan. See, that's what I think, too. I'm like, yeah. Elzar just looks, he looks like just a regular guy. Like, El- like it's like when you put Hayden Not next even to you in. It's like, though, right? like, like there's, there's a confidence with Stellan, right? Yeah. And like, there's, yeah, there's that humor. Whereas Elzar is like, you know, if you're not going to be the best looking, like be the toughest, be, be something. He's kind of just like, I don't want to say he's mediocre at everything, but, no, but he's, yeah, he, he just is. He's just there. Um, and, and he, he kind of is to me, Stellan like seems to, and, and we have very limited knowledge about how, the promotions from knight to master and master to council and all of that stuff mm-hmm. happens. So I'm making some leaps in logic here to kind of fit pieces together, but it seems like Stellan has more earned things by being ahead of other people, by being better at Jediing than his yeah. peers. Yes, whereas Elzar gets things because that's the next step. And even he doesn't think he's ready. He doesn't think he's ready to be a Jedi master. But he just is kind of is a Jedi master because that's yeah. the next thing that happens in the Jedi path. You know what I really did like about this, though, in terms of really both of them, is that Avar Chris was not really not present in this. You know, like, yeah, they, they yeah. talk about her and everything. But I like seeing who they are without her. I had kind of assumed from all of the promotional stuff that we got, you know, oh, my God, at this point, what, two years ago? Um I had assumed that she would be kind of the main focus of every single story and that these these stories would all be synonymous with her. And after Light of the Jedi, I was I was fine with it. I wasn't as amped about it as Drew was. Um, but like I, I could live with that. But I really, really loved seeing these characters develop on their own. Yeah, and, and I, I think with Avar, they're kind of keeping her on the fringes because... I think there's something big in store, like something, something we've I mean, never if seen we had before. To, if we had to make predictions, I would also not be surprised if they move this off the page and they want to do any kind of like live action. I think it would be focused around her and centered around her. So I mm. wouldn't be surprised if they're holding some punches to see how this develops and then being able to tell her story a little bit more. Yeah, I could see that. I could absolutely see that. But at the same time, you know, and, and I think our two ideas are not mutually exclusive, but I think they're kind of doing, you know, a Darth Vader or Luke Skywalker here where more Darth Vader, where you can't put him on screen all the time. Otherwise, it takes away from, yeah. from him. You know, like yeah. we, we have so many Vader comics, like it's not that interesting to read Vader in the comics anymore unless you get something really unique right. and cool you like, you are not wrong so again the scarcity effect and another one just as a side note Briaga, like they're keeping him off to the side also and i don't know if it's just because ah, we just wanted to have a wookie jedi and he's really cool but they every time he comes up they always mention his empathy and his compassion 
which of course we saw in play in Light of the Jedi, but why keep mentioning it every single time in every single book that we get? Anytime he comes up, it's about how he feels other people's emotions and his passion and his care for other people. I feel like they're foreshadowing something. They're setting something up with him. I don't know necessarily. I think they... I don't think anything necessarily crazy major. I think they love the concept and the idea of him, but it's so hard to write for. You know, that's something we really, really saw in um, The New Republic and in Legends. It's incredibly difficult to write for Wookiees. Yeah, I mean, you can just look at the holiday special for that. <laughs> so, Last Jedi that I really want to talk about real quick is is Bell because again, he Okay. He is the most fascinating and my favorite of of the Jedi that we get in the, in these books. And to me, like he's clearly ready to become a Jedi Knight if for nothing else than for the maturity of not wanting to become a Jedi Knight. Like, as Catch-22 as that Mm -hmm. is, his realizing that he's not ready to be a Jedi, to me, makes him ready to be a Jedi, which is pretty cool. And and I just, I like, I think he had the perfectly crafted arc in here. When you start at the beginning, you have him and Indira working together to get him out of trouble and save his life, which juxtaposes him and Loden at the end, which makes you think, oh, it's going to go the right way, and it doesn't. I mean, look, I like him for so many reasons, um, and this is this is the one character who I am so excited for and really, really rooting to get more of in any capacity whatsoever. Um, you could even give me, like, flashbacks to when he was a Padawan in the temple, and I'd be, I'd be all for it. Um, but the way he remembers, you know, certain things from the past and the connections he's able to make and the how critical he is of himself, I think, is something very new to Star Wars um, or at least to the Jedi. We don't really have many examples of the Jedi or of individual Jedi who are as critical of themselves as Bella's. And that's what makes it so fun and so fascinating and so relatable. I think the only parallel you would have would be Luke in in Last Jedi, you know, which, again, you have the parallel of shutting yourself off from the Force, which Bell does. Honestly, the only parallel I can think of is, um, oh, my God, the Jedi Apprentice books, like way, way, way back when, like 19, you know, like 1998. Those were um, 1999, uh, yeah, where and, it's, and Obi-Wan, right? Yep. Yeah, and seeing like that young Obi-Wan. Yeah. I would say it's really the only yeah, back in like 1999, 2000, that's really the only example that I can think of where we see it this way. And it's fascinating for me cuz I'm looking at it through the lens of like, okay, how do you get a student who you know is ready but doesn't believe they're ready to realize that they're ready, you know? And and to me that's that's really interesting and it I found it really interesting, too. You know, you have this attack where he almost dies. He's, you know, kind of in the same situation that Loden is in. And then he goes in the back and you have another baptism that really helps him see how this near-death experience influenced him, which I think, to me, the way I read it is that somehow helped him to 
be able to finally connect with Loden. There was always this little disconnect where he knew Loden wasn't in the force, but didn't know Loden was alive. And I think that was so good. But for him to, because I think he always thought it was a fault of his own that he mm-hmm. didn't feel him in, as he says, you know, the cosmic force. And then for him to have the line of like, oh, he wasn't there, you know, like exactly. that, that I really, really, so for him to literally doubt himself until he got that concrete proof is so so human and so relatable and also let's not forget dogs like it was so (laughs) basically like have their own service dog and so it was great like he was a service dog he was lassie oh like i honestly like i would get an ember tattoo i'm not gonna lie (laughs) Um, i hope you see him on um real quick though too before we kind of wrap things up i think one thing that um was just incredibly well done that is so difficult and usually a criticism i have of other authors the for lack of better words i guess the the fight scenes so good and so so quickly paced but also i liked that there were those quick kind of sections and quick jumps where it's not the you know, I, I get that Alexander Freed has like his style of writing and the, the people who like him love him for this. But for me, I just can't sit there and read long battle sequences and understand where every single person is and what they're doing and how that relates to what you read eight pages ago. I think this this was much more my speed and much more my style. See, that's the, the 0.25 difference between the 3.75 and the four rating that I considered giving it because I felt like, yes, absolutely. Like getting the little snippets of things made it easier to digest. But when you mix the fact that you've got 14 Jedi characters that you're following and the entire like uh siege, we'll call it of Valo runs like 200 pages out of the 400 page book. I mean, I got about 100 pages in, and I was like, okay, I'm kind of over this. Like, I get the point. Let's move on. Like, this, this, you know, the great disaster you get for, you know, 50 pages, maybe 60 pages, and then you, ha- you know, have the cleanup and stuff. This is just, like, straight up the battle for 200 pages of the book, which, yes, it does it does increase the the weight of the loss and the power of the Nile, but I think the, the return on investment there starts to die at about 100 pages for me. Um, I would argue that's more of a fault of the kind of first 200 pages for having that many characters that we need to follow. But if you're going to have, you know, the 14 Jedi that you need to follow... It's it's really well done for what he was up against, but I would I completely understand the point. I would just say that's more of a fault of the first two hundred pages than the second two hundred pages. That's fair, and I, this is one where like I really do want to go back and listen to the audiobook because I feel like getting the different voices will make it a little bit easier to um, just jump back into that situation and then maybe listening to it rather than reading it. You know, will listening happens a little more compactly than reading it over, you know, the weeks it took me to finish this book. It might make it not seem so long. So I'm definitely planning on revisiting um, that. But the one character who is not a Jedi that I am very excited, well, I already said Ty York. So the other other character (laughs) that I'm really fascinated by is Chancellor Lena So. Because to me, 
I see her right now as the antithesis of Palpatine, which I think is is really purposeful. I think she is going to fail really hard and that it's going to create this through line where we can see why the galaxy was able to get behind Palpatine so quickly because they have these trust issues that he that are are almost institutionalized at that point. They're systemized. Everybody is going to distrust the government because Lena So didn't want to have this uh, defense force. She only relied on the Jedi. I think they're they're setting up a cultural thing that maybe again not a prequel, but we can go. Mm, that's where it started. Like I think, I think this event, this Republic Fair attack that has the the Senate, the the Republic, basically militarizing the Jedi, is that first step towards you know General Kenobi. I think that this this is kind of that through line there. And I think the same is going to be, we're going to be able to see with Lena going into what would eventually lead to, all right, we're not going to have anybody who's like that in power. So we're just going to have these figureheads like Valorum and let the bureaucrats run things. That's mm-hmm. not working. So then we're going to uh, move on and go to Palpatine. Does that make sense? It makes it makes complete sense, and I would say this is something I I hope we get in later phases of the High Republic is seeing the more well-rounded approach where it's not just like, hey, here's the Jedi from the inside, or here's the Jedi from people directly related to them. I think this is something that the kind of main Star Wars, Star Wars universe was getting really really good at, um, to the point where we wanted more Jedi stuff, which is, hey, here are the normal people in the galaxy. Um, I would like to see more of the the outsiders, more of the politicians and everything and see their stories to fully understand how that happened. Because it's one thing to see it from the Jedi's point of view, but we need, need to see the need to understand it from everyone else's. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, one, one last thing I want to touch on before we get to the end of the book is Martian and the Nile. Um, yes. Oh my God. How are we an hour into this and we're just talking about Roe? This is how much, oh, man. like, honestly, when I think about the fact that, like, the Thrawn has a, tri- Thrawn has two trilogies and we made this book one book. Come on, guys. This is, this should have been like two or three books. Like, I want a whole trilogy of just the rising storm or at least like make it a part one and part two. Like, this is that kind of, if it was a movie, you would have to break it up into two, you know, two, maybe even three parts. But um, the thing that that stood out to me for Martian and what makes him a really fascinating villain is how he can so quickly turn everything to his advantage. We kind of, with Palpatine, we kind of have to make the assumption that he manipulated the things, right? So let's take just for ease of, of conversation will take like the the contingency and his you know cloning and everything we kind of just have to assume he kind of started all this whole cloning thing and had these experiments going on we don't necessarily see him putting the pieces together right, right. with martian and and a part of the benefit of this is you know the time that you get to spend with him and you're getting to be in characters heads but you're getting to see him when you know pan uh, attacks and, and causes the disruption of his plan, you see him on the spot pivot where you don't really always see that with Palpatine. Um, 
and, and I like the way Palpatine manipulates Anakin personally, but everything else he's manipulating on a very galactic scale, right? Martian is is we don't see so much the galactic scale, even though that's there. We're seeing the personal manipulation. We see him uh, get, you know, Udi Din to emotionally invest in, in the situation so that he can sacrifice him. He uses everything that Pan does to his advantage. You know, like, it's, it is Palpatine, but it is a little bit more on the emotional side rather than the puppeteer side. That's a really interesting comparison um, and a really unique kind of line to draw. I hadn't thought about that um, in terms of kind of beginning to end. But yeah, I, <laughs> I in an odd way have really nothing to add just because that's a pretty perfect summary. <laughs> right well, let, there me, let me ask you this about him then because <sighs> – I at first I was frustrated with Pan's attack being so similar to the mistakes that Cass have made in Light of the Jedi. I was like, really? Okay. Are we doing this? We're really doing this. But then when I thought about it, and I thought about the fact that, you know, Martian is the one who's making these promotions as far as we can understand. Uh, they're clearly setting up some kind of infight between him and Lorna. Like, I think that that's going to mm -hmm. come to a head. But they're making these other pieces replaceable. My question to you is, do you think Martian is intentionally setting the Tempest Runners up for failure in order to eventually eliminate that position and take over everything? Not intentionally. Um, I do think that's where we're headed, obviously, because they aren't there by the time we kind of meet Star Wars. Um, so we know that something happened where this threat has faded out, this organization has faded out. Um, but I don't think he's necessarily doing it intentionally because as, you know, any other rise to power has shown, like, you kind of need that army to back you up. It might phase into something else, but it can't completely dissolve when you do reach the, the step that you want to. So I do think that's what's going to happen. I just don't think it's intentional. I think that's going to be kind of like the tragic flaw for him. So kind of like, um, to go back to the Palpatine analogy, Palpatine getting rid of the Senate because he believes in the Death Star and then the Death Star blows up. Not a direct comparison, but yeah, in a way. Like, it, it, kind of the same idea of, I, mean, I have, no, I have a greater power, so I'm going to get rid of the, the plebes that I was using to keep the masses in check i would say it's it's more palpatine dissolving the clone army in favor of stormtroopers so a shifting of the but ideology in that yes but in that transition there's going to be a mass failure okay okay i can see yeah that. like i think palpatine does it successfully whereas roe is going to fail and i i do think that they are like i said setting up a, a fight between Lorna and Martian. I'm excited. I'm really excited. I'm excited for it, yeah. Oh, the Tempest Runner audio drama, especially because it's written by Kevin Scott, and we've seen what Kevin Scott did with Dooku Jedi Lost. Like, um, 
as good as the he really Afra, is the Renaissance man, isn't he? He really is. I forgot that was him for a second. Like, yeah, people sleep on the Afra uh, audio drama. It's really good, but it also was, I was retelling a fan a, of it. But it that's, was retelling that's just a story. Why. It was more Afra fatigue at that point. Yeah, which is fair. And and it does yeah. what the radio dramas, you know, did the Star Wars radio dramas, where they're retelling right. the story. So you already have an idea. What what Kevin Scott did with Dooku Jedi Lost, it was a completely different beast. He's having to create this whole world and only has words to be able to use it to do it right. And not not actually backtrack that he only has what people say to be able to do it. Not even words. Like here, we can clearly see he can do a lot with words. He's only going to be working with what people are saying to each other, right? And that is a again like Renaissance man of of writing. That's mm-hmm. a whole nother level. And so they they are clearly pushing Lorna as being she's kind of that you know uh, that it, that that football player that really is a jerk that always wants the ball, but they're just too good to trade them. You know, like it's not it, it's. Yeah, she's arrogant. Yeah, she's full of herself. All of the Nile are, but she actually is able to justify it. Like, she is not cocky, because if you're cocky, to me, that means you are you think you're better than you are. She's confident. She knows how good she is. She knows what her worth is. And while she does have respect for Martian and what he brings to the table, she's not afraid of stepping to him and saying, that's not going to fly. And I, And I get the feeling mm-hmm. that in the back of her head, whether she's admitted it to herself or not at this point, and maybe this is something we'll get in Tempest Runner, but she knows if he steps in the wrong place and I have to take him out, I'm going to take him out. And I think that she would do it not in the way that Pan is planning on doing it out of revenge, but in you're leading the Nile in the wrong direction, so I'm going to stop the hemorrhaging by cutting you off. There's almost like... you're she's the only one who you get the sensation or the feeling like she actually cares about the people underneath her which makes her unique in that in that organization and in that world mm-hmm. absolutely absolutely okay so last thing on the nile and this kind of goes to the end of the book um well actually the beginning and the end of the book because it's nicely paralleled is this leveler uh smoke monster thing thoughts I am okay with it. It's not like I'm like, this is amazing, you know? I hate it. It just... Do you? I really do. And, Why? And two reasons. Number one, with the start of the book and everything they did, I think the, the cave analogies, I think the um, the darkness, the sacrifice, all of those things that are presented as ideas of it's very Dante, you know, going through the different levels of hell uh, there at the beginning of the book in order to get this prize that I loved. Then you get to the end and it's like, well, here's this thing that we talked about at the beginning, but haven't mentioned since, except for maybe like one or two passing references. Again, it's, it's the, this needed to be two or three books instead of one book situation where I don't feel like I, I, think, uh, I don't feel like I care about the threat as much because I don't feel the loss I of Loden as heavily as you need to because he wasn't around most of the book. 
I would say going back to kind of how we kickstarted this conversation where you are clearly citizen high, whereas I am citizen low, what with, you know, reading and whatnot. Um, <laughs> okay, I would not say that, really, but continue. <laughs> this really shows the difference because while you're able to equate this to Dante's Inferno, I'm like, it reminds me of Lost. <laughs> you know, like, I, no, that's the fair. first TV show that I... Yeah, and and Lost truly is like this. I think I've said it on here before, but it truly is the first ever TV show where I watched every single week live, you know. And and if we weren't home, this was even before we had like TiVo at the time, you know. We would uh, record it and I'd go home and I'd watch it, and then we got TiVo and I'd record on that. Um, but that's the first show that I ever watched live every week from episode one all the way up through the finale. And I think there were enough similarities there, both in terms of having, like, you know, a smoke monster, basically, and things kind of just being forgotten about and dropped off, i.e. the polar bear on Lost. Drew literally mentioned both of of those things when we were talking about this book. Amazing. Amazing. Because it, it really is kind of similar, and there's things that I think you train yourself as a fan of other things to accept and be okay with. So for me, like, I don't love it, but I'm okay with dropping things off and then picking them back up later. I I understand the frustration and why you'd want it being done differently, but in in a book like this, I'm okay with. If I had other issues with this and I had other criticisms and other flaws that I that I had throughout it, yeah, that would probably be a huge deterrent for me. But because I enjoyed this so much because there's so many other strong things in this, like I'm I'm okay with that you know it's probably one of the reasons why i'm not like this is five stars this is the pinnacle of all books and all star wars books um see i'm kind of sort of with you there in in a different way like this doesn't this very lightly factors like it's another 0.25 factor of why it's not a, a, a five star book like it's not a big factor but the fact that it just happens so quickly at the end i totally get the idea that they're going to pick this up later, like this is obviously a thread you have to bring up later, okay? So I know it's coming back, which is why I'm not letting it take a lot out of the book for me, but build that thread up. Give I, I, I'm a fan of a slow burn, you know? Like make it hurt yeah. so that when this thing finally hits, and let me let me be clear, I have no idea how you do that, telling the story that they told. <laughs> So I'm not I'm not like, you know, trying to sit up here on a high horse and preach to Kevin Scott how to do his job. But I think that that is a flaw with this. If you're going to create this big weapon that is supposed to show you even more how evil Martian is. Martian was scarier to me throughout the whole book than this would did become and probably will ever be because you're spending time with it. Have him sacrificing things to this monster, you know? Have him, you know, look... Oh, my God. What if you had him looking at this monster in the same way that Elzar's looking at the animals in the zoo? Come on, now. And I said I couldn't do this. Look at me. Oh, man. Are you listening, Lucasfilm? Get this guy out. (laughs) Hire me. In the meantime, we will be here talking about the next book that comes out in the High Republic and all of the other ones, because um, there's a lot, and we didn't even get to cover everything on this book. Like, 
this is one normally I don't have to go back and look at a synopsis while I'm taking notes and stuff. This one I was going through chapter by chapter on Wikipedia because I could not remember everything that happened in this book. I was like, oh my God, that did happen, you know, like three weeks ago for me because for some reason I was really slow reading this book. But, uh, yeah, it, Honestly, it was Honestly, I feel like every, like, six months or so on the, the flagship show, Clashing Sabers, we need to kind of, like, revisit this and look at, like, okay, where are we at with each kind of grouping? Um, just because there is so much and, and everything is so heavy-packed and it's the content's coming out as quickly as it is. I do feel like it's it's enough where we can't necessarily cover it all on this show, but, like, we need regular installments oh, on yeah. the show. Oh, and yeah, and... To the High Republic's credit, and and to the Repu- uh, to the Republic credits, to the credit of uh, <laughs> you know Lisa and everybody over there that's working on the promotion of this stuff, like we can't cover it all here. Like, and also, you know, we need to cover it on our main show because it's a bigger thing than just the books, right? Like, even though it is just books, it's bigger than just the books. This is a whole idea and philosophy and world that they are setting up so i'm definitely excited to to have some more of this Lindsay, you rated this as a four at the beginning if i remember correctly it's been a long hour i, I did and you know what i'm sticking to it i, I know okay. i said i was really worried that in talking about it i would lower the score but it really did not i i will i will keep my 3.75 also i think I feel even better about the things that I felt better about. I don't feel like I feel any worse about the things that I felt worse about. And the only reason I don't put this out of four is just because I, you know, like I said, there are those knocks that keep this from, this is not going to be the book that I'm jumping back to read all the time, but it is a book that I am going to reread because of the importance of it to the story. If that makes right. sense, right? And it's it's not that you're not going to do it because it's bad. It just really is so so dense. I don't mean dense in a bad way. No, no, no. It's like it catalyst. just really is dense. Like yeah. Catalyst is a very yeah. dense yeah, book, which yeah. is why I enjoy it. This is a very dense book, which is why I enjoy it very much. But the I can't read Catalyst, or I can't read Master and Apprentice, or these books with like heavy in ideology and content just for enjoyment. And that's, <laughs> that's my fault. Um, you know, like I read them analyzing them. So whereas like a, a, a dark disciple or, um, you know, queen shadows, rebel rising, most wanted, like these books, I can just grab them and just read them and just enjoy and have a good time. Whereas with something like this, and even honestly with Light of the Jedi, I'm going to be looking at it as, okay, what does this tell me about the galaxy? What, you know, we talk about that, like being able to, to read it just for entertainment or being able to read it from the Star Wars podcaster angle of things. This is one of those books that I'm always going to be reading it from the angle of, okay, what can I get out of this? Um, and I think that they packed too much of that into one story, which kind of knocks it a little bit for me. But again, very very minimal for the amount of words that i have spent um talking about them but if you want to talk to us about this book if you want to share your ratings if you want to discuss any of the topics we either did or did not cover on here make sure that you um get in touch with us you can join our facebook group which is uh clashing sabers star wars or star wars clashing sabers i always get it backwards uh i'm on twitter at clashing sabers and of course we have our email clashing sabers network at gmail.com so if you email us there we will definitely talk about uh your email on either our main show or here on don't burn the sacred text all of that 
plus Sith Talk and Starships and Forever Star Wars. All of it, guys, is all available right here on the Clashing Sabers Network, all under the same feed. So make sure you are subscribed, and then make sure you go and subscribe to our Patreon uh, to support our literacy initiative. And reminder once again, teachers, friends of teachers, parents of teachers, brothers of teachers, sisters of teachers, dentists of teachers, dog walkers of teachers, go nominate your teachers to get books, free books from us, no charge, no nothing, just free books for kids to read and get them excited about reading because let me tell you what, we need to get these kids excited about reading again. So help us to help the teachers, to help your friends, to help your family, to help your kids' teachers. Nominate your kids' teachers. You don't know them? You don't th- It doesn't matter. What a way to start the year off. Them getting a box that you nominated them for. And here's 30 free books. Here's 50 free books. Whatever. We're going crazy. Nominate them. ClashingSabersNetwork at gmail.com. Lindsay, what did I miss? I feel like you covered it all. Got all of our shows. Got the nonprofit. Yeah. Think you got it, my friend. Man. Crushed it. Peak podcasting right here. This is <laughs> all my radio host dreams have come true. I've, I've peaked. Uh, I'm hanging up the jersey, guys. Uh, keep reading. Keep writing. But whatever you do. Don't burn the sacred text. All right, by this point, you know how this goes. Their stuff, their stuff, our stuff, our stuff. Not associated with Lucasfilm. Kathleen Kennedy, give me a call. Dave Filoni, I'm there if you need me. Our thoughts? They're our thoughts. They don't reflect Lucasfilm or anybody else associated with this stuff. So if you don't like it, we're sorry. If you do like it, great. Let us know either way on iTunes, on whatever podcatcher you're listening to us on. Rate us, review us, share us, tell your friends about us, and dadgummit, whatever you do, just don't burn the sacred text. Ah!